Well, brothers and sisters, friends, maybe you've been coming to CBC regularly for a while, or maybe this is your first time here today. Either way, it doesn't so much matter. We are resuming a sermon series that got paused a few weeks ago. So we are in the fourth of five sermons through the wonderful Old Testament book of Ruth this morning. But regardless, for any of us, it's been about a month since we've been in the book of Ruth. And so what I plan to do is to give a little bit of time to catching us up and giving some context for the book. So it doesn't matter if you've missed the first three sermons, you'll have a general idea of what's been going on. I'm going to do that in just a second. I'm going to read a quote from a pastor friend in Texas. He put it up this week on social media. Some good things are posted on social media, whether you believe that or not. I'm going to read this because these are his words, not mine. But put these in your mind. Quote, if a pastor wants to help his flock avoid pragmatic approaches to God and his word, the applications in his preaching must go beyond giving practical advice. Do this. To deepening doctrinal roots, believe this. Often, the latter, believe this, is the best and only application to make. Close quote. Keep that in your minds. If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. We're going to be considering today Ruth chapter 3 and verse 1, all the way through chapter 4 and verse 12. But you're going to have a moment to flip there, a moment to find your way, because as I've said, there's a lot of context to set. I'm going to try to do that for us now. Just considering where we've been in the book of Ruth. We've considered in the first message that Ruth occurs, it's set in the time of the judges. What is that time frame? Well, it was a time in Israel's history that was governed very much by and characterized very much by lawlessness and apostasy amongst the people of Israel. This was a time when people did what was right in their own eyes. We read in the first verses of Ruth that there was famine in the land of Judah. There was famine because of covenant curses that God had put upon his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, most notably, there's a list of blessings that God's people could expect for obedience to the law, and also a list, a long list of curses and judgments that they could expect if they broke the law and did not live according to it. Famine being one of those. In the midst of all of this, a man named Elimelech, along with his wife Naomi and two sons, leave the promised land to go live in a foreign country. They go to dwell in the land of Moab. Elimelech, in the country of Moab, dies. Naomi is left with her two sons. They have both married foreign women, Moabite women. But then these two sons of Naomi die. So now it is Naomi, the mother-in-law, left with her two daughters-in-law who are foreigners. Naomi, in the land of Moab still, hears that God has visited his people and has given them food. So she's going to go back to the land of Judah. She's going to go back to Bethlehem in particular. She seeks to dissuade her two daughters-in-law from coming with her. Ruth and Orpah, the two daughters-in-law, decide they want to go with Naomi to Bethlehem. And she tries to convince them to do otherwise. 
Her reasoning for this is because God himself is against her. God, she says, has assaulted her. There are no prospects for marriage or for family for Ruth or Orpah if they come with Naomi. That's what she says to them. Ruth, for her part, continues to persist. And Naomi eventually gives up and stops talking. And Ruth and Naomi make their way to Bethlehem. When they arrive in Bethlehem, the town is abuzz. All of the women are like, Naomi, is that you? Keep in mind that she had been gone for a long time potentially 20 years or so. Many of these people in Bethlehem may have questioned whether they would ever see her again. For her part, when she's being greeted by these people, Naomi, is that you? Says, look, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant, sweet. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Because you see, that's how God has dealt with me. God has been very bitter in his dealings with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Things are bad in Naomi's world. But there is a ray of hope at the end of Ruth chapter 1. After famine has been plaguing the land, the barley harvest is beginning. Beginning of chapter 2, we're told of a man named Boaz. We're told that he is a worthy man, and we are told that he is of the clan of Elimelech. And then the narrator just moves on. Just kind of leave that there. There's this guy named Boaz that you should know about. Now let's pick back up with the story. Ruth asks her mother-in-law if she can go and glean in the fields. This was under the law God had given through Moses the civil laws in particular that God had given to Israel, there was provision for sojourners and orphans and widows to be able to gather and scavenge in the fields during harvest time. So Ruth asks her mother-in-law, hey, can I go do that? Should I go do that so that we have food to eat? Her mother-in-law approves, so Ruth goes. And we considered how in the text, it's dripping with this kind of ironic, coincidental language, right? She just so happens in going out to the fields to find herself in the portion of the fields owned by this man named Boaz. And then, behold, as Ruth is working in this portion of the field, behold, Boaz just happens to show up from the town. He goes out of his way to do good to Ruth, to provide for her, to protect her. And Ruth is struck by this. I mean, remember, she's a foreigner. She's a Moabite. She asks why she has been shown this favor, this loving kindness from this Israelite man when she did not deserve that favor. Boaz responds that everything that Ruth has done for her mother-in-law since leaving the land of Moab has been told to him. And he says to her that he knows that she has come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. And so he's doing these kind things for her. Boaz sees to it that Ruth is provided for abundantly. He even invites her to his table and serves her bread and wine. When Ruth heads home after her first day in the field, she's loaded down with grain. Naomi, her mother-in-law, sees this and says, where did you glean today? Who were you working with? 
Blessed be the man who's taken notice of you. And Ruth tells Naomi that, it, hey, it was a man named Boaz. And Naomi, who has been so bitter, is overcome. She blesses the Lord and exclaims that the Lord has not stopped showing loving kindness to her and her family. It's quite a moment and quite a change in this woman. And we considered that together, how God did that for her. God grants repentance, and he repented Naomi. At the close of chapter 2, we learn that Ruth is going to continue to glean in Boaz's fields because he invited her to do so. This is a significant thing. These two women had no security, no stability, no social safety net whatsoever on which to rely. There had been famine in the land, and now going to glean in the harvest fields and have ample food to eat for an extended period of time. During this time, Ruth continues to live with her mother-in-law. So things are going well, and at the same time, Ruth does not have her own household, which is suboptimal, but that's going to change as we come to chapter 3. One last thing before we jump to the text today and we read it together. There's going to be a lot of language. If you've already seen this, we've considered this in some of the past messages, but I want to go ahead and say this now. There's going to be a lot of language about Boaz being a redeemer. Boaz in particular being a kinsman redeemer. What that means in the context of the Old Testament is this. There were civil laws about familial redemption in the book of Moses. Those laws about familial redemption contained the duty of a close relative to buy back property that was sold by another relative to settle debt. Or even if that relative had sold himself into slavery to potentially buy back that relative from that agreement. Also contained in the Levitical law, the Mosaic law of a civil nature was the duty of a brother to marry the widow of another brother that was deceased in order to preserve the family name and property, known as a leveret marriage. Now that principle could be extended to other close relatives beyond brothers, it seems, but there was not in those cases the same level of obligation. So when you see this language about Boaz being a redeemer, these things are in view. All right, we've done that. We've set the scene. We've considered the context. Now let's look at our passage for today. Ruth chapter 3 and verse 1 through chapter 4 and verse 12. I'm going to read these verses for us now. This is the word of God. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly 
and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders, my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Amen.
we thank God for his word. So my plan for the rest of our time this morning is to consider the passage in four scenes. It is a narrative passage. So scenes one, two, three, and four. Then I want to make a few pastoral comments just about how we read the scriptures. And then I want to give us two meditations to close. So hopefully that makes sense. Four scenes, some pastoral reflection with you, and then two meditations to conclude our time. So let's look to the passage and consider scene one. Scene one, entitled The Plan. The Plan, from chapter three, verses one to five. And in particular, I'm referring to the plan of Naomi for what's going to happen between Ruth and Boaz, at least what she hopes to see happen. Verse one of chapter three. Naomi seeks to care for her daughter-in-law. So she says to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? She wants to help her daughter-in-law find rest. Now that's the same word that we saw back in chapter one in verse nine. The word carries with it a connotation of security. Just listen to this. Keep this in your mind. From Naomi's perspective, she wants to find rest. She wants to find security for Ruth, found in a bridegroom who is a redeemer. Let the hearer understand. Before we move forward, I want to comment briefly about the fact that we should read Ruth redemptively. Like what I just said, rest, security, found in a bridegroom who is a redeemer. Read Ruth that way. Read the scriptures that way. In particular, as we're about to launch into what Naomi's plan is, and as we're about to consider the scene at the threshing floor, if you don't read these things redemptively with Christ in view, my question for you sincerely is, what, what you going to get out of this? What you going to glean from this? You're going to glean principles for dating and courtship? Principles for male-female interaction? I, I don't think that's what we would see. There are things you see described, narrated in the scriptures that are inherently redemptive in nature. And then alongside that, there are things that the scripture clearly prescribes for us to do. But wisdom comes in learning how to discern the difference, right? We need to be thoughtful readers of the scriptures. There is narrative in the scripture. There is gospel, promise. There are promises in the scripture. And there is law in its various uses, including prescription in the Bible. I'm thinking about various things contained in, for example, the book of Genesis, or the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, Esther, Ruth, fill in the blank. There's a lot in those books that we certainly should not be trying to derive moral truths from. If we try to do that, we're going to come up with some really weird stuff. And Christians have in history. And the reason that we come up with weird stuff is because we often try to use the scripture in a way that it was not given to us to use. Content in the Old Testament in particular that is of a narrative nature is not there primarily to teach us about morality. 
It's there to teach us about something else. Put your eyes on verses two through four as we think about Naomi's plan. She lays it out for Ruth. She says, is Boaz not our relative with whose young women you were? You've been working with him. She says, see now, he's going to be winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So the harvest season's coming to an end, right? And they're going to be winnowing the barley on the threshing floor. So there's going to be a, a party, a festival of sorts, a celebration of the fact that the harvest has come. So there's going to be people there. And she says, Naomi does, verse 3 to Ruth, wash therefore and anoint yourself, literally just perfume yourself, right? And put on your cloak and go down there to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to Boaz until he's finished eating and drinking, until everything's winding down. And then when he lies down, literally just know where he lies down, observe that. And then go, uncover his feet, uncover a portion of his lower body and lie down. Next to him, he'll tell you what to do. And then Ruth says, verse 5, everything you say, I'm going to do that. So that's the plan, which brings us to scene two, the threshing floor. The threshing floor, verses 6 to 9 of chapter 3. We're going to consider those verses together. Verse 6, we read that Ruth goes to the threshing floor and does everything that Naomi had commanded her to do. Then it's described for us. When Boaz had eaten, when he has had something to drink and his heart was merry, literally his heart was glad, he goes to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then at this point, everything's winding down. There would have been other people around, right? This is why Ruth has to be sort of covert. She has to come softly so as not to be noticed, and she does so and uncovers Boaz's feet and lays down. Later, around midnight, we're told, he was startled awake, Boaz was, and he turns over, and behold, a woman is there. Ruth is there. And so, understandably, Boaz asks, in the midst of the dark, can't see well, not what he was expecting to have happen, who are you? And she answers, this is really a good answer. She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. And then she gets right to it. Spread your wings, your covering over your servant for your redeemer. Now, it's not the language that we would use, but that language at a minimum implies marriage. For a man in this context to spread his covering over a woman was a marriage kind of thing. Boaz asked, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth. And now that I've told you that, what are you going to do given that you're a redeemer? In other words, are you going to redeem me? Are you going to marry me? The actions of Ruth and Naomi are very bold, to put it mildly. A lot of times people get really mired in the weeds here on whether the language in the original Hebrew, which is ambiguous, about whether there is a sexual component to this or not. Regardless, the language is ambiguous, regardless. We're not going to waste our time debating that. A woman at night alone going to the threshing floor, uncovering a man and lying next to him is a thing. And it doesn't have to be sexual at all. It's a thing. And we have a woman, a foreigner, a widow, proposing marriage to a man of stature. The whole thing in its presentation is startling. Particularly startling when you consider the historical setting. Again, as you read this, ask yourself the question, why is this in the scriptures? 
Always a good question to ask. Realize too, before we move on to scene three, this bold move could have gone any number of ways for Ruth and for Naomi, and only one of those is good. Only one of those ways is good. Could have ended really badly. So the question then is, what's Boaz going to do? Brings us to scene three. We've had the plan, the threshing floor, now scene three, the response. The response from verses 10 to 18 of chapter three. In verse 10, it becomes clear that Boaz is not at all upset by this. He's not bothered. He says in verse 10 that Ruth has shown him kindness in not going after younger men. So he's clearly interested. Verse 11, he says that he will do for Ruth all that she has asked. He will redeem her. The whole town, he says, knows that she is a worthy woman, a woman of excellence. This is the same word that was used to describe Boaz himself in chapter 2 and verse 1. A worthy man. Now we have a worthy woman. The text goes on in verses 12 and 13. Boaz indicates, though, he said all these things, but he says, you know, there's a redeemer closer to the family than I am. And he has effectively right of first refusal. And if he doesn't want to do this, then I will happily, as the Lord lives, I will happily do these things for you. Now, it's clear later in the, the text, I already think verse 10 makes it plain that Boaz is not upset by this obligation. It's going to become even more clear in chapter 4 that he's not upset at all about this obligation because he is going to manipulate the entire situation at the city gates so that he is the one who redeems Ruth. There's a lot that I could say. I thought about it this week, just how the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, Boaz is a type of Christ, right? Points us to Christ who is our Savior. We talk about this a lot, how Jesus does not redeem us in some sort of begrudging way. He delights to be the one who saves his people. Just as Boaz wanted to be the one to redeem Ruth. This is not at all. It's like, well, you know, there's another person that should do this, and I guess if he won't, then I will. Not at all the vibe you get. Verse 14. Ruth stays the night at the threshing floor, but she gets up before it's light enough that people can see well, before one can recognize another, right? But Boaz still, there's obviously other people there, so he communicates to people to keep this whole thing quiet. Because this would not have been good for anybody's reputation, the fact that this occurred, that Ruth came to the threshing floor like this. Then in verses 15 to 18, Boaz gives Ruth more barley. He's given her a lot of grain at this point. Ruth goes back home. And of course, Naomi, we imagine Naomi probably didn't sleep a lot, I wouldn't think. She's anxious about how's this going to turn out. So she asks Ruth when she comes back, how did you fare? Literally, who are you, my daughter? Like, did this thing happen? And Ruth's answer is, well, he gave me these six measures of barley and he told me that I must not come back to you empty-handed. Now that empty-handed word, again, it's good to see connections within the book of Ruth. That same word there, he didn't want me to come back empty-handed, is the same word that Naomi had used to describe herself and how she had come back to Bethlehem. I left full, I came back empty. And now Boaz is saying, hey, I don't want you to go back to Naomi empty-handed. Clearly, the Lord is at work. These things are not coincidence, friends. 
And alongside that, this seems to be Boaz's way of saying to Naomi, look, I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow through and make this happen. Which brings us to scene four, the city gate. So we've had the plan, the threshing floor, the response, now finally the city gate. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13 of chapter 4. Boaz in verse 1 goes to the gate of the city. Now this is in this time where a lot of business was done. This is also where legal matters were settled. And then the redeemer guy comes by, this other guy who's closer to Ruth and Naomi in relation than Boaz is. It's pretty funny in in the original language. We don't talk a lot about original language unless it's kind of a cool insight. The guy is so irrelevant to what's going on that the way that he is written of in the original is literally the way that we would speak as like Mr. So-and-so. Like this guy doesn't matter because he's not the point of this. This dude, right, this guy shows up. So Mr. So-and-so shows up on the scene and then Boaz greets him with our equivalent of like, hey bro, come have a seat. So he does. Verse 2, Boaz gathers 10 elders of the city to sit with them. That's what was needed for a decision in a legal matter. And this is a legal matter. So he gathers what he needs, Boaz does. And then in verses 3 and 4, Boaz starts to shrewdly relay the situation. He says, look, I wanted to, hey friend, you know, I wanted to tell you in the presence of all these people that Naomi has come back from Moab and she's selling the land that belonged to her husband. Because in this context, historically, Land went directly to someone's children when they died. The problem is Elimelech's children are dead, so this land is in kind of legal limbo. We've got to figure out what's going to happen with this land long term. So Boaz is like, you know, I thought I'd tell you about it because you're close in relation. If you'll redeem it, great, redeem it. Keep it in the family. But if not, which I understand, if you don't want to redeem it, let me know, and I'll take care of it because there's nobody other than me. I'll do it if you won't. The Redeemer guy at this point says, no, I'll do that. I'll redeem the land. Then verse 5, Boaz just kind of slips this piece in. Oh, by the way, if you buy the land, you're also going to acquire Ruth the Moabite. You're going to need to marry her. You're going to have children with her so that you can perpetuate the name and the inheritance of the dead. So in alignment with Deuteronomy 25, Leviticus 25, This is what's going to occur, man. If you inherit this land, if you buy this land, you're going to need to do this with Ruth as well and take her into your household. Then verse 6, the guy is like, well, you know, now that I think about it, now that you mentioned that piece of this, I don't know that I can do this after all because this is going to make things complicated for me in terms of my own inheritance. So he's looking out for himself. He's looking out for his own household. It's not going to work well. Why don't you do it? Pretty shrewd on Boaz's part. In verses 7 and 8, we're just told of a custom of the day where people would exchange sandals when they would exchange pieces of land. We thought about this in Genesis 13. The reasoning behind this is because back in that era, to put your feet on a piece of land was to exercise ownership over it. So when, for example, God promises to give Abram the promised land, the descendants of Abram the promised land in Genesis 13, he says, walk up and down the breadth and length of the land. This is the land I'm going to give you. That principle is what's in view here. So this is just the way that legal exchange of land was handled. Then in verses 9 and 10, Boaz pronounces, kind of like we would say in front of God and everyone, what he's going to do. 
elders are there, townspeople are there, people are gathered at the gate. He says, here's what I'm going to do. You're witnesses to this. And the people respond in verses 11 and 12. Yes, we're witnesses of this. This is a good thing. Then they bless Boaz, the people do. And they bless Ruth and their union. The blessing contains some very good redemptive historical content that we're going to consider in more depth next week in our final sermon. These people spoke better than they knew in terms of how the Lord would use this union. So that's the scene. For the rest of our time together, I want us to reflect a little bit. I'm going to offer those two meditations at the end, but I want to make a few more pastoral comments. This is me talking with us about how we engage with the scriptures. Before I say what I'm about to say, I'm going to say this. In the first three sermons in Ruth, we've done a lot of work exposing our hearts. We considered the bitterness of Naomi and how we are so much like her. We see ourselves in her. Life is not going well, and she's frustrated with God about it. Thought about that. How she's so blinded by bitterness that it's all she can see. We've thought about how Elimelech and his household were a picture of how we all are so inclined to go our own way and do what is right in our own eyes. This family left the promised land to go eat in a foreign country. Things don't go well outside of the promised land. They don't go well for these people of God outside of the land and the community of God. And we thought about how we, like Naomi, we, like this family, do the same thing. We leave figuratively speaking, the promised land and go into a foreign country to do what is right in our own eyes. And then when things go poorly there, we're angry with God about it. We blame him for it. We thought about how just myopic and stubborn and despondent we can be and how often we say things about God that are untrue. Instead of using words, for example, like the Psalms that God has given us to speak to him when we are hurting. So we thought about all that in the first three sermons, for example. But when it comes, so that's my kind of, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to say the thing. When it comes to passages like our text today, Ruth 3, 1 through 4, 12, here's my encouragement to us. First, enjoy God's word. Enjoy this story. It's a remarkable story. And then ask yourself this question. What is this about in its original context? And what is this about in the context of the whole scripture? Ask yourself, why is this in the Bible in the first place? I would suggest that Ruth 3, 1 through 4, 12 is in the scripture primarily to teach us about how God works in a fallen world through people who are broken vessels in order to bring about his purposes of redemption that will be realized through Christ Jesus, who, by the way, 
will descend in his humanity from Boaz and Ruth. Read the scriptures in light of Christ and the redemption he would come and accomplish. We read Ruth like Christians. If you don't read many, many portions of the Old Testament, the narrative portions of the Old Testament this way, you will draw very suspect conclusions from countless passages in the scriptures. If you're going to the text to glean it for law and morality, whatever, it's just not there because that's why, or excuse me, that's not why so many of these passages are in the Bible. They're there to teach us about God and his ways with us, and they're there to teach us about redemption. So when it comes to the Old Testament, read it this way. Christ, I'm going to assume you can still hear me. If you can't, somebody wave your hand. Christ came. Amen? He came. He established through the shedding of his blood and his perfect life, the new covenant. So he stands here and his shadow is literally cast backwards over the entire Old Testament. Read it like that. That's what we mean when we talk about reading the Bible in a Christ-centered way. All of the types and the shadows and the events of redemptive history contained in the pages of the Old Testament served a purpose in their time, yes, and they were pointing to something, to someone greater and other who would come. Both are true. We've talked about this many times. I'm going to say it again today. The things that are revealed to us in the Old Testament in terms of these types and shadows, for example, the Passover, the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, fill in the blank. They're given the way that they're given because Christ was coming. It's not enough to say that Christ came to fulfill the Old Testament, which he did, but the Old Testament is arranged and revealed and happened the way that it did because Christ was coming. There's a difference. Read your Bible that way. Read Ruth that way. It's more profitable. That's my pastoral comment. Now I want to meditate for us, offer some reflection on this passage. I'm aware of time. I'm going to aim to love us well. But these things are good for us to consider. First meditation I want to offer for us this morning is on the love story of Ruth. The love story of Ruth. People have observed that the story of Ruth and Boaz is not your typical, you know, boy meets girl, instant chemistry, undeniable passion kind of love story. That's true. There are comments that could be made about that. Not really going to make them, though. Because the real love story of this book is not so much about Ruth and Boaz at all. The real love story in this is actually the one of God's love for his people, for his sheep who stray. Time and time again in the scriptures, we read of God's grace and God's mercy, his compassion, his faithfulness, and his steadfast love in the face of his people's sin. 
Sometimes it's more underneath and behind the events on the page, as we saw repeatedly, for example, in Genesis, where the purposes of redemption, God's purposes of redemption, keep trucking on in spite of sin and foolishness. Other times, though, this mercy, grace, and love of God in the face of his people's sin is more overt. It's more explicit, like in the prophets. You realize that the prophets are essentially God's commentary on redemptive history. You want to read the events? Read the history books. You want to understand what God thinks about it all? Read the prophets. He'll tell you. He tells us what he thinks and what he's doing. Ezekiel 34 was read earlier. We're going to come back to that passage most likely at more length next week. But sometime this week, read Ezekiel 16, then read Ezekiel 34 and 36. I think it will affect you. Right now, I want to consider some of the words of the other prophets. Consider these words from the prophet Hosea. Have in your mind God's steadfast love for us, his people. Ruth and Boaz, that union would produce, would lead to the Christ who came to save us. Keep that in your view. Consider the words of the prophet. God speaking through Hosea to Israel. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness and like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. The next words are these. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That is language of affection, right? And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Language of love and betrothal. God for his people. Listen to Isaiah. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. 
Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. Then these words, come now, let us reason together. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Or these, you did not call upon me, O Jacob. You have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Then these words, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. This is our God. This is why we say we come here not hoping in ourselves. We come here acknowledging that we are sinners and weak and frail. And our hope is in a God who has mercy and steadfast love and compassion like that. I'm going to go ahead and read these words from Jeremiah. I was contemplating cutting them out on the fly. I'm going to read them anyway. You guys good? Everybody okay? All right. Consider these words from Jeremiah. Don't take my word for this. Just listen to scripture. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought after she's done all this, she'll return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So there you have the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Later in Jeremiah come these words, though. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What's he going to do? Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He is bringing about that redemption through the events of Ruth. It's how we need to understand our scriptures. We would all do well to contemplate and ponder more than we do the ways in which our God has loved us. Second meditation, and this is our closing. This meditation is on 
rest. In particular, I'm getting this from chapter 3 and verse 1 and the principle contained within the entire book of Ruth where Naomi says to Ruth, is it not good that I should seek rest for you, that it would be well with you? In the immediate context of Ruth, as we've already acknowledged, the plot of the story is about Ruth finding rest under the covering of a redeemer. But in the shadows throughout this wonderful story is the redeemer who would give his people rest once and for all and then forever. That redeemer named Jesus was born of woman descended from Ruth and Boaz. He was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. That's all of us. He fulfilled the law as a human being in our place. He died under the law as a human being in our place. He entered the most holy place, the presence of God, covered not in the blood of goats or bulls, but covered in his own blood in order to make atonement for the sin of his people. In order to do that, he gave his life. He was raised on the third day. You realize that's why we worship on the Lord's day, on the first day of the week, because it's the day that Jesus got up from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and sits there now. He intercedes and advocates for us, and he will return to bring us to be with him where he is. Question, what would he then have us do? First and foremost, what would he have us do? I'm going to offer a few thoughts. He would have us be persuaded that we are to work nothing, that we are to do nothing, that we are to render nothing unto God, that God would therefore in turn show us his favor. But that we would receive the forgiveness and the righteousness that Jesus has secured for us, even though we are still great sinners. He would have us do that. He would have us be persuaded that we will obtain forgiveness, righteousness, and eternal life, not by doing something, but by receiving something. And we would receive that something from him. He would have us trust that what he has done for the redemption of mankind, he did for us. It's one thing to say Jesus is Lord. It's another thing to say he's my Lord. He did this for me. And he would have us look to nothing or no one else. And then as a result of that, he says, now go and sin no more. Go pursue love and righteousness. You don't need to atone for the sins of last year or yesterday or the sins of today. And because of me, you are free to pursue righteousness today. Go and do that. You see, when we talk about what Christ has accomplished for us, I realize that we have some individuals with us today who aren't always here. We talk about the fact that in Jesus Christ alone, we are justified. We are declared just by God on account of Christ. And what that entails is not just that Jesus died for our sins so that we could be forgiven and have a clean slate. That's true. He did that. That's only a part of what he did for us. 
He also lived a perfect life as a human being for 33 years and fulfilled all righteousness. And so, by faith in Christ, we are united to him. Everything that is true of him is now true of us in the eyes of the Father. And so, it is as though we have never sinned, done the bad things. It is as though we were never sinners, like we don't have the corrupt nature of Adam. It is as though that's true. Two, and it is as though we have been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. Three, he did everything that is required to save humanity. So when we talk about being justified in the Lord Jesus Christ, we mean all of those things. Everything that God would ever require, he gives in God's providence, today is Easter Sunday. We didn't plan this out this way. We had cancellations of services that we would not have foreseen. So this passage happening today and reflecting on rest is providential. This is Holy Week, rightly defined. Maundy Thursday, we celebrate the institution of the Lord's Supper, the night that Christ was betrayed. On Friday, Good Friday, we had a service here. We remember the crucifixion. Today, Sunday, Resurrection Day, we celebrate the fact that Jesus got up from the grave. His sacrifice vindicated, our resurrection secure. But sometimes, Saturday is skipped over. Saturday, when Jesus laid in the tomb, was a Sabbath day. A day of rest. He was put in a tomb. His body remained there that day on the Sabbath. And that, my friends, is not coincidence. Nothing in the scripture is. You remember when God made the world? Everybody says, yeah. Everybody remember when God made the world? Yes. Genesis 1 and the first few verses of Genesis 2. You remember the way that the creation account is written by Moses? And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the third day, etc. How about the seventh one? Here's what it says, Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. What's missing? There isn't any, and there was evening, and there was morning, the seventh day. It's not in the text. Many Christians before we've been alive have understood this to say something about the Christ who would come, to point to something in the future. Consider this. You consider it. Jesus laid in the tomb on the seventh day of the week. His work finished. Righteousness fulfilled. Satisfaction for sin made. Redemption accomplished. And then he would rise the next day in order to bring us into the new creation that God has prepared for those who love him. And 
And Christ's invitation to us is this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Along with Naomi, we ask this question. Should we not seek rest that it would be well with us? Beloved, come to Jesus and find it. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you, by your grace, working by the power of your Spirit, would give us this rest in Jesus Christ. We pray that we would know it in more depth. We pray, Father, that we would then think really well about the fact that we rest in order to do. We receive in order to go in love. We pray that you would fill us even as we contemplate your Son from the Word and as we come to receive of Christ his mercy and his merit for us in his table. Minister to us, your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.